work their way out. Um, if, if you haven't been with us very often uh, and you're wondering, hey, we only sang a couple songs, what, what's going on there? Um, we do sing more. Uh, we, we save the rest of our, our worship through song for after the sermon. We do that intentionally. Uh, we don't want to view the singing as a means to kind of get ourselves emotionally to a place to, to make it through a sermon. But we believe that where God speaks most um, clearly, most regularly, is through His Word. And so we want to then worship in response to what He reveals to us about Himself through His Word this morning. And um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Um, here at Redeemer, we tend to be spend our time working through a book of Scripture, just uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, over the course of weeks or months or however long it takes. And so we've been in Ecclesiastes since um, early December, um, working our way through this Old Testament wisdom book. It's, it's a book that you most likely have probably not spent a ton of time in, um, and, and because it's, it's just a little strange. One, in American culture, we don't deal with wisdom in, in literature form very often. And then second, the book can, can feel pretty pessimistic and a little dark, um, as, as the author and the writer of Ecclesiastes is basically taking the viewpoint of someone who is, is a humanist, right? A, a secularist. They're not saying there's no God, but they're not showing faith in God. And they're looking at the world and they're just beginning to deconstruct everything around them to see, hey, does this have significance? Does this have value? Does this have meaning? And the question that Ecclesiastes will leave us is that either nothing has meaning or everything does. And, and the author is just going to work through Ecclesiastes chapter by chapter, really leaving the answer um, at, the very, at the very end. Um, Proverbs, another wisdom book in, in Scripture, kind of gives us the rule of life. Like, hey, if you do this, most typically this is the, the, the consequence or the benefit. Ecclesiastes comes in and says, hey, I'm going to show you all the exceptions. All the things that are not the rule of life, that when you can do the right thing and still get wiped out, right? It's, it's going to come in and it's just a really stark and honest book. And so we're going to pick up in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 5, and we'll be working our way into chapter 6 um, eventually. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed the cultivated fields. We're going to stop there momentarily. Basically, the, he's observing, and he says, okay, you, you want to see something? Let me tell you this. Don't be surprised when you see injustice. You're going to look around, and you're going to see a lack of justice. You're going to see oppression, and don't be surprised by it. Um, it's not, a, it's not a, an optimistic viewpoint, right? Peter tells us, as he writes to the church in the New Testament, hey, don't be surprised, church, right, to Christians when fiery trials come. Like that, It's a part of the broken world that we live in, and it's a part of how God is refining us and making us more into the image of Jesus. And it's a similar refrain here where the, he just says, listen, why are you surprised when you see oppression? Like, why are you surprised when you see injustice? Do you not know that the world is corrupt and broken? And, and so what he's going to say here is, listen, he, he starts just to list officials. He says, so, so there's an official, and there's an official over him, and there's an official over him. And so what's happening, he says, one, 
is that an official starts to be corrupt. And in their corruption, um, it's not good for the people. And so he starts to just take a little more tax or a little more money or a little more benefit for himself. And so the one under him, well, he needs to do that too because he's got to have his. And so the one under him does it too. And the one under him does it as well until eventually you get to the poor. And there's no, there's no one left for them to oppress, and so they're just oppressed. He says, and, and not, only does, not only are they that kind of squeezing and getting all they can out of these layers, he said then there's a, a bureaucracy and a red tape that they're looking out for one another, and they cover each other's backs, right? That nothing can get accomplished and get done. And so if you've ever dealt with government trying to get anything done in an expedited fashion, right? You're like, oh, it's bureaucracy, right? Like it's, it's, it's just the fact that nothing is seamless or smooth or quick, and it's frustrating. And yet we know that government in Romans 13 was given to us, right, to provide protection and justice. Like that's, that's in its intended purpose. And yet the author here is going to say, but are you really shocked when a government is corrupt? Are you really shocked when there's oppression, when there's brokenness, when there's a lack of justice, when people are being fleeced? Like this is not what the kingdom of God should look like. And, and so then in verse 9, we see this strange phrase, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. And so unusually here in Ecclesiastes, we're kind of, typically we're left with just like harshness. But he leaves this phrase and he says, what actually is good for the people is a king who has cultivated land. And well, here's what he's referencing. In Leviticus 19, verse 9, it reads like this. When you reap the harvest of your land, so it's talking to the, the farmers, the landowners, you shall not reap your, right, your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I'm the Lord your God. And so the people of Israel were, were told, hey, when you take care of your cultivated fields, there's, there's some excess that you're going to leave for the poor and the oppressed and the foreigner and the traveler, right? Like, you don't take it all for yourself. You make sure that there's some for others, right? It was an attempt to fight back against oppression. And so here, he says, what's a blessing to a land, to a country, is a king who is committed to cultivated fields. Because if they're cultivating fields, then there's going to be enough for everyone, and so he's trying to show a contrast here, right? That, that, that some are going to oppress, but a king who sees his people, right, is a good thing because he's providing a way for them to be cared for. So the question even for us this morning is, right, is do we put our hopes in, 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 in administration, right? And, and this is not an attempt to, to be political, or to, but it's just to say the government is never going to save us. Right? Like, that's not, that's not what they've been created for. They're meant to provide justice. They're meant to provide a place for righteousness and to see oppression met and dealt with. But they're not, because of the broken and fallen nature of the world we're in, if we put our hope ultimately in any administration, it will crumble and it will fail us. That is not our salvation. It is not our hope. Listen, the people of Israel knew harsh taskmasters. Right? They could have gone back to their time 
in Egypt when the Pharaoh said, more with less. Do more with less. You want to make, I want you to make bricks. Well, now I want your quota to be higher, and now you have to go get your straw yourself, right? Like, there was this constant, you can't do enough, you can't please me, you can't give me enough. And instead, the kingdom of God is cultivated fields. Right? Where there's, there's an eye for the oppressed. Where there's an eye for the weak and the poor. And, and it's not just from the bottom up, but it is from the top down. So this morning, we started with these two verses. And where this is going to go is it would be easy for us to look at this passage and say, okay, but I'm not a government. I'm not even really a leader. Um, I'm, not, I'm not oppressing people. But where a lack of justice typically comes, what most often, not always, but what most often drives it is money and a desire for more. And that is something this morning that can get to our hearts as well as we have to deal with money in our own perspective, in our own hearts, and how we view it and perceive it. And so that's where the author of Ecclesiastes will then continue. So pick up in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Remember, vanity is the idea of vapor that you can't quite grab. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, and he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, and he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in, all, in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with a joy in his heart. Chapter 6. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Listen, when you read through Ecclesiastes, it just feels dark and heavy and sometimes cumbersome. Right? Like you don't leave going, man, 
like light and airy, right? There is just a weight and a heaviness to Ecclesiastes. And so as we walk through this section of Scripture, really what he's doing is, is the author is helping us note some things about money. The first is this, verse 10, one of the clearest comments we will see in Scripture, that the one who loves money will not be satisfied with money. There's no, there's no um, clarification really needed here, right? There's no opt-out. It's just, hey, if you love it and you want it, it's not ever going to satisfy you. Right? Your wealth, your income, it's never going to be sufficient. It's never going to be enough. There's always going to be the need for a little bit more. And so someone who is poor will say, well, I only want a little bit more. I don't need to be wealthy. Right? Someone who's wealthy will say, well, I just need a little bit more. Right? There's always this insatiable appetite for more. I just need a little bit more. And it never stops. Right? You can think about this in your own life. You've never gotten to the point where you look at your bank account or your paycheck and say, yeah, that's good. We can stop now. Right? Like that, it actually sounds insane right, to think about that. And we would say, well, I'm not, I, like, I, I'm not a lover of money. I'm not a greedy person. And yet you've never said, hey, you don't have to pay me anymore. Or like, make sure anything all over the top of this just gets pulled out of my account and given away. Like, right, we do have a struggle for this, whether we have much or we have little. Um, I saw um, a statistic this week that said if you're at the poverty line in America, that you still have more than like 85% of the rest of the world. Right? Like, which is just incredible. We, this is an issue. Verse 11, when goods increase, right? When, when you have more, those who eat them increase as well. Like this idea is like, hey, when you have more money, you have more things to spend money on. Like it's not just that more money comes in and, and your like bills increase. The people who depend upon you increase. Clinger-ons can increase if your money gets sufficient enough. Right? Like there's always more things to spend your money on. It didn't satisfy, and now you don't even get to really increase it because you're spending more. Verse 12 reminds us that there is, there's worry that comes along with the increase in riches. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Right? And he lays awake thinking about how he can lose it, how it can be taken, how he can gain more. Why doesn't he have, like, right? He says, listen, the one that works, whether he had enough or not, he sleeps because he's tired. And he's got to get up tomorrow and do the same thing. But there's a worry that can come with the increase in wealth. Verse 13, we see hoarding. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches kept by their owner to his hurt. Like he kept it, he hoarded it, and didn't even enjoy it or benefit from it. He just holds it. He's warning here against hoarding. He's just kind of observing all the different aspects here. Verse 14, And those riches, right, the one who hoarded them, were lost in a bad venture. And so, listen, he doesn't say the man did anything wrong. He doesn't say he gambled them away or he was frivolous with them. It just, they were lost. And so he had the agony of trying to gain the wealth, and now he has the agony of the loss of the wealth. And not only that, but he had a son, and he has no inheritance to pass on to him. And so he reminds us in verse 15 that wealth and riches and things and possessions aren't eternal. That naked you came into the world, 
Naked, you're going out. You came in with nothing, you're going out with nothing. And yet we can agonize and stress and worry and not sleep and spend our life chasing a vapor, a wind that we can see, that will not satisfy us, and yet we continue to try to grasp it. Right? As we look at a chapter like this, we can nod our head in agreement and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's hard then to turn it back to our own hearts and say, oh yeah, me too. We see it in others well. It is harder to see it in ourselves. He continues, look at verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. We just kind of see um, the, the poetic nature here of the one who is pursuing more wealth, more finances, more money, that he eats in darkness. The idea that he doesn't see, he's blind. He doesn't see what he's supposed to be enjoying, that he's supposed to be content, that he's supposed to be satisfied. There's always a, a layer of like emotional struggle on him. And so the picture of someone eating alone in darkness is not one that you go, hey, I, I would love that, right? I, I want to eat alone in the darkness. It's meant to make us like sad. And the, and the effort and the energy that someone is pouring out on something that can be taken away like that, that isn't eternal in the first place, and that he'll never be satisfied by it. Then we jump down to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. There's an evil I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives, listen, listen to what this person gets, wealth, possessions, and honor. He lacks nothing of all that he desires. Sounds like Solomon describing himself. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity. It is a grievous evil. He says, listen, they have it all, and they can't enjoy it. Right? This is the one that you would look at and say, oh my gosh, if I had their house or their car or that celebrity's life or their vacations or their island or their trip, I could... And then you hear them in a memoir or an autobiography or an interview talk about how they're not happy, they're not satisfied, they're not enjoying it. He says, they have it all and they can't enjoy it. What an evil this is. And so he illustrates it in verses 3 through 7. And he makes kind of a, a, a hyperbolic argument. He says, listen, let's just assume there's a man has a hundred children, right? Like a blessed man, lots of kids, lots of offspring. And he lives many years, like lives a long time. Like so, he gets he gets the things, the stuff, the heirs, the legacy, a long life, all the things that we might want in this life. But he has all life's good things, and he's not satisfied, and he has no burial. Right, like that. There's no real relationship. He then says, "A stillborn is better off than he." Now, listen for those who have suffered loss of children. Um, he is not taking that lightly here. This is not meant, he is meant to, he's showing a stark reality. Because if we're honest in our culture, we would say that one of the saddest things that could happen would be the loss of a child early, where it does not get to experience life. And he's saying there is something worse than that. It would be someone who gets all that life has to have and doesn't enjoy it, who doesn't get rest in it, Right? Like that we think death early is the worst thing. He says, no, no, no. That child has gone to rest with God. This person has everything and they have nothing. 
And that is a far sadder, far more grievous thing. And so if your heart kind of gets in your throat when you even hear the idea of a stillborn, you say, yeah, that, but even more so the one who would live this life without satisfaction in God, without satisfaction in the good that he has provided. But in between this kind of indictment on wealth and on riches, the very end of chapter 5, he lays in some hope. Look at verses 18 through 20. It says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. The, the switch here is he says, listen, there's, there are people that have money and possessions and things, and they have enjoyment and they have satisfaction. So what's the difference? The caveat here is God. The one does it doesn't view God, doesn't look at God, looks for his things to bring him peace and hope and satisfaction, and he's miserable, and it would be better that he hadn't been born, is basically what Ecclesiastes says. The other would say, no, 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 in God there actually is satisfaction and peace. That God is giving us the ability to enjoy it if we see it rightly. Turn to the New Testament for a moment. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul writing, says beginning in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, it sounds like Ecclesiastes, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, doesn't say those who are rich, those who desire to be rich, can fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You go over to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. All right, we, we see Paul writing very similar to what we see in Ecclesiastes 5. Right, That he's not saying it's a sin to be rich. He says, but it is the love of money that will lead people away from the things of God. Like the pursuit and the love of it. It's not in the having of it. It's in the love of it. And so the question for us this morning is this. Are we content in God? Are we content? Are we, are we content with what we have? Listen, you cannot begin to summarize all that Scripture has to say about money in one sentence, let alone... Um, in one sermon, it would take weeks of sermons, right? We, we, we see in Scripture the idea that, hey, um, that we're called to be generous, that some have much and they're not called to give it all away. Some have much and are called to give it all away. 
right? Like that there's all these different ideas that it's good to have, leave a legacy, right? That we're called to be obedient. Like there's all these nuances of Scripture that we see in, in Proverbs and throughout about money. Church, if we're not careful because of the culture that we live in, we can kind of become numb to and blind to the warnings of Scripture regarding money and resources. And we begin to not take them serious. Because we just say, oh, I know someone richer than me. I know a lot of people richer than me. I know a whole segment of people. Like, so that's for them, not for me. But injustice comes, impression comes, from always needing more, always wanting more. And there's not a dollar amount or a percent amount left there. It can be even at the bottom of the barrel. The decision to be content isn't a one-time decision. You may have at one point been content in your standing, in your money, in your possessions, and find yourself no longer content. Right? It, it, it's, a, it's an ebb and flow thing that we understand that we can drift. We can be walking, trusting, following Jesus, and all of a sudden begin to drift into heavenness and idolatry and more and more envy. So this morning, would we be encouraged that that we can trust His control. That God sees you, and whether He has given you much or little, He sees you. And that you can trust that He is working and maneuvering in your life for your good. Right? That we can hold it loosely. The reason... We've referenced this passage often, but the reason that Paul in Philippians will say, when I've had much, like I've had more than I needed, Jesus was sufficient. And when I had not enough, Jesus was enough. What he's teaching us is to hold things loosely, that sometimes you're going to have more, and that's okay. He's not saying, oh no, you have to be afraid of it. You have to be aware of it. And when you don't have enough, right, he's saying like, can we hold those things loosely, not believing that God is condemning us if we're poor and that God has not said He is completely pleased with you if you're rich? Right? That we would hold the possessions and resources of this life loosely as a way to trust and to honor God. That we can honor Him in either or the middle ground of that we trust Him to provide for us. Because ultimately, a lot of times, our pursuit of, of money is a, a way of gaining security, a way of gaining stability. And if we're not careful, what we're saying is, God, I don't think you'll do that. I don't think you're trustworthy. I don't think you'll come through. I don't know if you see me. And he's inviting us to trust that he is sufficient, that he is enough, that he will see you and care for you and meet your needs. That you don't have to do that. He's a good dad. Right? Like that his character is good. And he loves you. And we would steward it. Because if we believe it's ours, first and foremost, then we hold on to it tightly. And what Ecclesiastes is saying is, listen, you can hold on to smoke as tight as you want, and you're not holding it. Right? Your fist can be clenched. And God's like, pulling our fingers off of it this morning, saying, hey, you're holding smoke, you don't really actually have it, because it's not yours, it's mine. 
And so I want you to steward what I give you well. Psalm 24, 1, right, reminds us that everything is God. In Luke 12, we have the story of the man who, who looks at all that he has, and he's like, I should build bigger barns and just store more stuff. And he's called a fool because it says, like, tonight your soul will be required of you, and someone else will enjoy it. Right? Like, do we steward what God has given us well, or do we look to hold on to something that actually doesn't belong to us? So the question then is, who are we serving? Right? So Matthew 6, Jesus talks specifically about this. Beginning in verse 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light in you is darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Church, where are our hearts this morning? Where are our eyes? Is God the means in getting the riches that we want? Or is God the treasure? Listen, if we love money, Ecclesiastes tells us you will have a lack of contentment, a lack of satisfaction. You will have worry. You will hold on to tightly to something that you can't actually grasp. You will trust it as security. You will always be saying just a little bit more. You will find that it's not eternal, that it doesn't satisfy. Like I, I can even, listen, I'll illustrate this even in regards to something that's not financial. Um, when we began Redeemer ten and a half years ago, there were 13 people. And there was, I knew other guys who were planning churches. Um, I met with a bunch of them this week. And over the course of 10 years, the Lord has just slowly but surely brought additional folk. Some from Pampa, some from other communities, some from other states. And when we met that first time, and there's like 13 people, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, God, what are you doing? This is incredible. And if 13 people had showed up this morning, I would not have said, God, this is incredible. I wouldn't have. I would have panicked and thought, what have I done wrong? Right? If I'm not careful, I can hold tightly to a numerical standard that God is, is, is that I would view success by how many people are in the room. But success is not how many people are in the room. Success is faithfulness. It's obedience. It, it's trusting the Lord. And so the numbers that Redeemer have ebbed and flowed and gone up, and there are numbers that I would have said, if we ever had 100 people, like I can't even believe that, and that would be incredible, and I, I would be sat. I wasn't satisfied. Like I have to fight my own heart to say I'm not satisfied. And I know it's ugly and it's wrong, and I have to fight against it, war against it. That's what Scripture is calling us to this morning, to war against our insatiable desire for more, in regards to possessions and finances. It's not to say to have any is sin. Please, that's not what Scripture is saying. But it's saying, where is our treasure? What has our heart? What has gripped us? Or what are we trying to grip? 
So the opposite of the love of money is generosity. And the way that we can war against our heart being owned by the love of money is to be joyful givers of money. Because in being joyful givers, we are saying, God, it's not really mine anyway. I have it, and when you tell me to steward it, it's going. And I'm glad to do it. Because we have the perspective that He is the owner of it. And so now finances become not a, a means of security, a means of stability. It becomes a tool that God is using. And so for some, it might mean a life that where poverty just is kind of, just kind of the life you have. And yet in it, when you're able to testify, I have had nothing. And Jesus is beautiful. He is so good. He is sufficient for me. I have lacked nothing. Like what a powerful testimony. When someone who has much gives much, people are like, what are you doing? You could have done all... I'm being obedient. It wasn't mine anyway. When someone who has little gives much, oh, what are you doing? You should have been... I'm being obedient. Right? Listen, Scripture is not... There's not a rule here where it says all of you today have to do a certain thing with your money. What it says is you hold it loosely before the Lord and trust His Spirit to direct you. And what you do is obey God with it in the light of the wisdom of Scripture. So we hold it as His and as a tool, and we begin to image the kingdom of God. Why in Acts 2, people were just giving stuff away. right? It wasn't communism. It was them saying, like we're caring for one another. And this is more about all of us than it is about me. It was imaging the kingdom. And so church, we want to be generous with our things because it points people to Jesus. That He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness because He's given us Himself. The Father was generous with the Son to give Him to us to rescue us through His life that was perfect, through His death that was obedient and in our place, and His resurrection which proves that He is who He says He is. He's our rescuer and He's our redeemer. We didn't deserve that. And yet it's been given generously and graciously that we would then be stingy in place of that is horrifying. That we would be instead generous because our God has been generous. One last passage. This is Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We began with a lack of justice and a lack of righteousness. But in the kingdom of God, there is perfect justice and perfect righteousness. That is what we will have for all eternity. And when the believers in God, the church, begin to live as, with finances as a tool, we begin to fight back against oppression and a lack of justice and a lack of righteousness. Because we're not boasting in our strength or our might or our wisdom or our knowledge or our possessions. We're saying we know God and He can have it all to His glory, because we've got the greatest treasure there is 
and He is enough for me. And so our grip is loose because we're reminded that we're traveling through and this place isn't our home. We live in light of death, not as a fear or a curse, but as a freedom. Because we know what's coming, we can now live in light of it. Because Jesus has rescued us and we don't fear death because in Him was the death of death. So church, this morning, would we ask God, God, would you help me enjoy what I have? Would you help me to see it as from you? Would you remind me that it's yours? And would I live faithfully and obediently with it in my saving and in my spending, in my generosity? Right? Like, would I trust you to lead and to guide me? And that the circumstances that I have are from your hand. I can trust that you see me, know me, and love me. He's enough. And so we can ask Him to give us clarity to see blessings in our life that maybe we're not seeing right now. Pastor Ray Ortland says, listen, tears are inevitable, right? Like when pain comes, we cry. But the joys of life we might neglect. What Ecclesiastes is reminding us this morning is this, is you have more joy than you know. You may not see it, you may not feel it, you may not know it, so are we asking the Lord to reveal the blessings and the joys in our life? Would we not neglect those? And would we be open-handed with all that you've given us? To His glory, for our good, for the advancement of the kingdom, until all we know is justice and righteousness. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we want to come open-hearted, open-minded, open-handed to you. Lord, all the, the doubt and, and the talk of yeah, but that we're feeling in our hearts and minds right now, uh, the desire to compare, the desire to, to, to hold ourselves up, God, would that just be washed away? And would we trust Lord, that you see us, you see our lack, you see our abundance. God, would we hold things loosely? God, you're not calling us to be foolish. You're calling us to be faithful and obedient. So would we not judge our faithfulness and our obedience on the lives of those around us, but in obedience to you? That the church would be the church, a beacon, saying this world isn't our home, and so the way that we handle our possessions and our resources don't, doesn't look like this world. It looks like yours. Would we not be afraid of money, but would we be wary of the love of it? God, in our conversations um, in, in the days to come, would you sharpen us and shape us to please you and to glorify you? God, would we trust this morning that you see us, that you know us, and that you love us that you care for us and you will provide for us. And some of us just, we, we need that. We are secure in your hand. We are stable on your sure ground, the gospel, hope in Jesus, and that you provide. 
Lord, remind us that you see us. Would we worship in response to you this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.